We are live. Okay. <laughs> We're always just going to start by like laughing at each other. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to my closet. <laughs> <laughs> we, that, yeah, that is where we are. Yes. Uh, hi, welcome to Gaming in Real Life, a podcast about the relationships players have with games and the way games create relationships between players. I'm John. I'm Gina. So how have you been? I've been okay. You just murdered my husband. I did do that. I did just kill your husband in cold blood. How did you kill my husband? How did I kill... I, you know, a combination of uh, magic and wit, uh, of course. Oh, I want to know what the specific <laughs> parts, what your specific, like, final blow was. Uh, it... Oh, I, I'm trying to remember. It's It was a new debt. So we were just... I was just playing a game of Ashes, Rise of the Phoenix Born, with uh, Gina's husband, Austin... That is an amazing game, by the way. If you have any interest in that sort of game or think you might, you should check it out. That's, I think, one of the best ones you could possibly look into. As far as deck building. As far as, yeah. Well, I would, I would, I would say that it's not even deck building, it's deck construction. Because okay. deck building, to me, is games like Dominion, where you are actually building a deck as part of the game. Whereas deck construction, I would say, is more games like Magic the Gathering, where you construct your, game, your deck before the game begins. Minor quibble, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. We're being very fancy today because we didn't. We don't have uh, beer like last time. We have white wine. That's Yeah, I, I'm sure that is going to raise the quality of this podcast considerably. <laughs> well, it's also the only thing that we had cold in my house, so... That, it's a limitation we were able to work around. I know. It's a real struggle we're having here. What else we've been doing? We played a, a couple games of Food Chain Magnet recently. We did. Food Chain Magnet is an incredible game that I have lost horribly at every time that we've played it. Well, me too, because we're always we're always fighting with each other. Your games have been closer than mine. I have to say, I think you you have been adapting to that game much better. I'm trying, but my again, my husband. Thank God you beat him today because otherwise <laughs> <laughs> he'd have a much bigger head. Um, no, he's just, he's always like off in his own little corner making burgers, and by the time we realize yeah. what he's doing, we're just screwed. Nobody ever get. well, I think one, so in Food Chain Magnate, we each run competing fast food uh, companies. Empires. And, empires. And we're actually on a map where we are, we're specifically advertising to people in our neighborhood. Which I think is really, I love the idea of like a billboard right outside your house, it's like, <laughs> Mr. Smith. You want to have beer today. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's it's sort of an abstraction, but I mean, the way that it works in the game is you will literally put a billboard in front of a single house, and then that house is the only one that can see it. And they really, really want whatever you're advertising. <laughs> to the extent that if uh, they want a burger one day and you can't feed them that burger, tomorrow they want two burgers. Well, that's just like in real life. Just like real life. Okay, so I think that's probably plenty of talk about what we've been doing recently. Let's go ahead and jump into today's topic. Um, Halloween is coming up. Do you like Halloween? I do. I'm not much for costumes, but I enjoy the aesthetic of Halloween. Yeah, I really like Halloween because it's, I think, the only holiday that doesn't get stressful as you get older. Mm -hmm. Because you don't have to travel, you don't have to buy gifts. It's just about, you know, staying in playing games with your friends, if that's how you celebrate your holidays, and um, I really, I kind of want to dress up this year, but I don't know what we're going to be. 
it's uh, I, I think it's also it's it's a subversive um, it's a subversive holiday more or less anybody who celebrates it is going to engage with some kind of taboo at least to some extent and I think that's a useful thing I think that it's a release valve that it's a release valve that I think many people need, so it's good for you, I think. Doesn't Dan Savage say that Halloween is straight pride? Yeah, that is exactly what he says. Yeah. I, I think there's something to it. I don't usually wear a lot of those, like, slutty outfits. <laughs> like, I'm not opposed to them at any... Not at all. But I, I did dress up as a slutty pterodactyl one year. <laughs> and the that mo- was really fun. The most surreal one I saw this year, there was a slutty Ken Bone outfit. Oh, oh. <laughs> I don't know if I'm okay with that. I read about somebody online who's uh, dressing up as a nasty woman, and her husband's going to be a bad hombre. I love that. Yeah. I love that. We brought up the idea of me possibly uh, shaving my beard, slicking back my hair, and dressing as uh, Ted Cruz, and my wife insists that if I do that, she will never be able to look at me again, so... I do not support that. But I think it would be... I, I think I could pull it off. No, I just have, like, a personal ethical problem with ever-removing facial hair. Oh. I feel very strongly about <laughs> facial hair on guys, that if you can if you can grow facial hair, that you should, and you should keep it no matter what. Uh, ooh, I'm actually going to be shaving off my beard before No Shave November. That's... Oh, wow, I'm going to be very disappointed. I are, really are, are we just not going to hang out during that time, then? Probably not. I don't think I'll be able to look at you. See, uh, that feels a little unfair, because you've <laughs> never grown a beard, and I still hang out with you. No, actually, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, no, I've told Austin, like, he shaves his beard, and that's probably grounds for divorce. Well, I've had the same conversation with Sarah and her uh, long red hair. That's so. true. So, Halloween games, what have we been playing? Well, I think we've just been trying to revisit some old classics as well as some of the newer, creepier-themed games. A couple rounds of Mansions of Madness. We did play a couple rounds of Mansions of Madness. Yeah, we can start there if you'd like. Do you want to start there or do you want to kind of start by talking about like anxiety and fear? That might be a better place to start. Okay. So, what what makes what makes Halloween what makes horror games horror themed games special? Well, I wanted to mention a little bit about the role between anxiety and fear in gaming because mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially as someone who's dealt with anxiety in her everyday life, I really enjoy the experience of anxiety, at least as how it relates to board gaming. Something about the the fear and tension. It's almost like a, an easier way to cope with the feeling that I can find overwhelming in my everyday life, mm-hmm. um, and I can enjoy it probably the same way that people might enjoy a horror film where their heart is racing, but they know that they're still in a safe place. Well, and yeah, I think th- it is something that horror games do especially well, is they do give you just that slight burst of adrenaline, which... In the context of a horror game, I think it almost imme- in the context of a game, I think it almost immediately gives way to laughter. Yeah. And so yeah, you get these elevated states that, and I I think those those help us bond. I think those give us a little dose of excitement, and it's really kind of interesting that I mean one of the things that amazes me about board games in general is that cardboard and plastic can make us feel things. Yeah. And I think horror games are some of the best examples of games that actually change our emotional state while we play them. It's it's just very it's very visceral how much your your physiological state changes as a result of engaging in this really rather flimsy illusion. 
Do you know much about the physiology of fear? I know nothing about it. Can you enlighten me? <laughs> I feel like I end up asking a lot of questions. Um, well, so one of the reasons that some people enjoy the experience of fear, uh-huh. um, at least theoretically, is that the experience physiologically of fear is actually very similar to arousal. So when you're feeling fear or arousal, your heart speeds up, your pupils dilate, mm-hmm. you might get a little sweaty. Mm-hmm. Um, and neurologically, you're running along many of the same pathways between fear and arousal. I believe it's the autonomic nervous system. And that's part of the reason why people may experience something like pleasure alongside fear. And I feel like I have some of that. Well, I don't want to say that. (laughs) I I feel like that's part of what's so appealing to many people about horror themed board games is that you're still in a safe space, but you have this excitement around what's going on in your body, essentially, Mm -hmm. and what's happening in your brain. Um, I almost feel like it's an exercise in neurological confusion. <laughs> okay. Which which can be surprisingly pleasant because anytime you're associating something that would normally be unpleasant with an experience of joy, it's a really it's almost like synesthesia, like um, two competing senses at the same time, allowing you to experience something in a new way. Yeah, I mean, I'm imagining, you know, this incredible, like, the, the sort of juxtaposition of, like, tension and release, which you can consistently create in this controlled environment, you know, letting you kind of wire this heightened state, and, like, oh, this thought is going nowhere. Let's just drop that. Um, <laughs> okay. You can come back to it if you need. I felt like I was talking about out of my ass a little bit just a second ago anyway, but... No, but it, 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 that was a really interesting, uh, that, that was a really interesting point, I think, because, um, yeah, people do uh, seek out the experience of being a f- of uh, experiencing fear but in a safe space. I mean it's the same thing we do when we watch horror movies. Now what's or interesting play video games. or play video games uh, in the survival horror genre. What's interesting though is that the illusions that horror games and or horror movies create are so much more convincing mm-hmm. than the illusion of sitting around the table and just decide It's a thing you do when you play a board game, and again, this is just something that's been on my mind for a while. When we play a board game, we all just agree to believe in a really flimsy illusion. I think that's one of the things I love about Dead of Winter. Dead of Winter is one of my favorite games. I find the theme so exciting. It's basically a a post-apocalyptic zombie universe that's also, what's the phrase, like, cold. <laughs> it's also cold. <laughs> it is also cold. <laughs> it's really cold outside. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like a, a frozen tundra post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. society. Right. And there's there's this line, so I'm I'm a lover of musicals mm-hmm. and, and theater and plays, and I'm thinking about something from a chorus line, actually, where this woman is taking an acting class, and the professor is telling her to like pretend that she's going down a a hill on a sled and other people are like oh you know whoosh whoosh I feel the cold I feel the air and she doesn't feel anything but when I'm playing a really immersive board game with an excellent theme when I'm playing Dead of Winter I feel like it's cold outside (laughs) I like I'm I'm scared to go outside because I know there's a chance that a zombie is going to bite me like I have 
in some way on the sides of my vision, I feel like I'm in this space. I feel like I'm in the colony. Like everything feels sort of heightened. I've been reading Consciousness Explained by Daniel Dennett, and of one of the have. it's it's super interesting. I don't know that we would necessarily agree with every single thing mentioned in the book, and it was written in the eighties. But one mm-hmm. of the things that he talks about is the fact that the way our brains process uh, information and experiences not always totally visual. A lot of it actually is in this sort of it's probably stored either in something in language or in something very similar to language. And so, you know, in the same way that I think books can make us feel things, board games can make us feel things too, just because they don't need to create a, a convincing visual illusion to give us the tools we need to create one, to create that mental immersion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like that you brought up theater, though, because I think Dead of Winter, one of the things that impresses me the most about it is it does the thing that I think many great board games do, which is it plant seeds of uh, of conflict, of disagreement. From the very beginning of the game, everybody has slightly conflicting motivations and goals, and that's where so much of the intrigue in that game comes from. And there's and, always the chance for a betrayer. So should we get into the specifics of the, at least the social mechanics of the game? Which yeah. I think are the most important part of it. Yeah, I think we should mention that. I mean, the game is mechanically brilliant. Every aspect of that design has been very well thought out. But I think the lifeblood of that game is that you are, so you're playing as a team. You're all trying to survive just this really nasty winter where you're short on supplies and things are going wrong and you've got some mission you need to accomplish. That much is variable. But on top of that, everybody's just a little unhinged and so every character has an obsession that they have to carry out. For example, you might have to hoard food or you might have to hoard medicine, or, or you might just be obsessed with going to a location by yourself, or something something strange, like, you have to do some kind of idiosyncratic behavior. Actually, we recently played The Long Night, which is a standalone version mm-hmm. of Dead of Winter, and I feel like they were taking it in an even further direction, because one of my goals, well, my only goal, in order to win the game, I had OCD, apparently, <laughs> and so I had to have exactly three of every card that I had, every type of item, and I couldn't have any more than three. And if I had more than one item, I had to have exactly three of each item. On the flip side of that, I couldn't have any items. And again, if if we had uh, failed to meet these conditions, even if the rest of the team won, we would have lost. And so we're very motivated to do this. And so everybody is going to be behaving in these ways that are just a little bit unhelpful. But on top of that, One player is potentially, and then, again, not even in every game, it's random whether or not this is there or not, but one player might be a betrayer who is actively trying to sabotage the mission. I sort of love how low the odds are of there being a betrayer, Mm -hmm. because there aren't that many betrayers per number of people in the game, Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like it's... It adds just the right amount of suspicion. And and sort of like you said, you have this thing that you need to focus on, but you also can't really explain to people why you're doing some of these things. So I remember I was telling your wife, like, I I will take this card, or I, I would like to give you this card for reasons. <laughs> for reasons, please take this card. Well, and imagine being in a post-apocalyptic zombie shelter and someone's just handing you a gun like, look, just take this. Please. I can't explain, 
but I really need you to have it. Please just take it from me. Yeah. <laughs> just the, the, the sheer paranoia. Um, yeah. That's really a lot of the brilliance of that game, is that so much of the fear is of the people around you. Oh, I totally agree. But the game also does a number of things to make sure that you are not only afraid of your teammates, but you are also afraid of the, afraid of the environment. So what does the game do to make you afraid of it? Oh, that's a good question. I think part of it's just the strength of the theme. And certainly, as many people have said, zombies are kind of a played out theme. But and done so well in this game. I, I don't even feel like it's just about zombies, though. I feel like it is about other people. Yeah, the the there are these story cards that are very well written, very well thought out. It seems like they put a lot of, uh, a lot of time and energy into deciding who each of the huge cast of characters in this game are and what their motivations are, and that much is very interesting. I feel like the crossroad cards really do facilitate some of that fear between people because you're constantly just waiting to see if the person next to you is going to tell you. And even the person who's reading the cards just like standing there waiting to see if you scratch your head or <laughs> ask yeah. a question. So crossroad cards are a storytelling mechanic, which is really smart. Whenever you're taking your turn, the player to your right has drawn one, and if you meet a condition that that player knows but you don't, then this story event is triggered. They read you a scenario, and you're either going to have to make a decision or else the entire colony is going to have to vote on a decision. And so every turn these things are happening that relate to some... Ch What's great about it is they often relate to some choice you've made or some unique game state. So it manages to integrate itself in the game you're playing very nicely. Well, and, and the conditions are... One of the conditions on one of the cards we were playing uh, the last time was this event was triggered if a player complains. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's so good. Yeah. I think the other thing that's just frightening about it is that there's so many opportunities for little risks. And I, I love the die that they have that you must roll every time that you go outside because you basically have a 1 in 12 chance of just dying the minute you set foot outside. This dice is called the exposure dice. Uh, so anytime you move anywhere, you roll this dice. It's like a, what's uh, it's about a 50-50 chance that nothing happens to you at all. Yeah. Yeah, there's basically an exposure dice. And so every time that you go outside or try and kill a zombie, you have to roll a dice. And there's a 50-50 chance that you'll be fine, but there's also a chance that you'll be bitten and the virus could spread so it forces you to make hard decisions about whether you're going to kill another person to contain the virus or sort of take a chance and hope that you survive and this is every single time that you move and every single time you interact with a zombie so it's so easy to get hurt in this game and it's not the the odds are good enough that it doesn't necessarily keep you huddled inside the colony but there's just always that that nagging dread, that tiny chance. And when it does happen, it doesn't happen a lot, but it's so devastating because it still feel like, feels like it's come out of nowhere, that you basically just like drop dead as soon as you came face to face with this terror outside. Well, and that brings me to another aspect of the design of, I think, a couple of zombie games we've played that I think is very smart. Rather than giving you one character with a sizable amount of hit points, they give you a cast of characters and they make them all very weak. So that way, people die more often. It still allows you to stay in the game when bad things happen, but it also means that when bad things happen, they are devastating. An unlucky term is not just, I lost a lot of hit points and it has no effect on the future game state. Uh, unlucky turn is, somebody is dead. I think you're talking about City of Horror. 
but Dead of Winter does this as well. Oh, oh yeah, that's true. I mean, you you have a cast of characters, but you you form connections. I feel like the the crossroads cards really facilitate you kind of getting connections with the characters because you feel like you're getting glimpses into their personalities. Mm -hmm. What did you think about? Dead of Winter versus Dead of Winter The Long Night, the new standalone version. I found them incredibly similar. I think the extra bells and whistles on The Long Night do make it a slightly more valuable game, but ultimately it did feel like playing the same game. I think the replayability of The Long Night is a little less just because there aren't as many crossroad cards, mm -hmm. there aren't as many characters... I feel like if you love Dead of Winter the way that I love Dead of Winter, it's totally worth buying that second box. And I also just love supporting Plaid Hat because I feel like they're very conscious game designers. I have a lot of respect for the people who make this game. But um, as far as whether you need both, if you haven't bought any before, what do you think? I'm probably not going to get The Long Night. As much as I think that it is an excellent game... I also recognize that I haven't gotten much play out of my copy of Dead of Winter yet, and there's still so much in that box that I haven't explored. So personally, I'll probably hold off. Do you think you might in the future as you play more Dead of Winter? Um, at the m If my play habits persist as they are, no. If I find myself with a playgroup that really likes that game and we play it a lot, probably. Okay. I will say, you know, there aren't as many potential goals in The Long Night. I feel like I'm really glad that I have both sets because it just adds a variety to the game. And certainly, The, de the Dead of Winter can stand alone mm -hmm. as being a game with a lot of replayability and richness. But I am just so excited to see this universe expand that I'm very happy with my purchase. Yeah, I and mean, then again, you talk about zombies being played out, but that's because zombies are so often done lazily. This game was not lazy. Everything in this game, from the mechanics to the writing about the characters, was just very well thought out. It is nice to see a game that has so much work and heart put into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on the subject of the fragility of players that is a major feature of horror games. I think some games accomplish this by giving you a large cast of characters so that tragedy can strike more often, but you can still stay in the game. Mm -hmm. And I think we see this in Dead of Winter. We see this in City of Horror as well. One thing that I do really appreciate about City of Horror, and I feel like it's it occupies a kind of strange place in my board game collection because I really enjoy the game, but I feel like it's difficult to get a sense of it the first time that you play it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also a game that can be treated sort of strangely. So, like, the first time that I played City of Horror, um, which, again, is a game about a zombie invasion, but involves you... That, again, involves you having a cast of characters, but is much more about discussion and um, negotiation mm -hmm. um, with high stakes. The first time that I played it, everyone kind of turned on each other immediately. And so there was a lot of backstabbing and promises made and promises broken. Whereas, whereas the second time that I played it, I felt like half the people were trying to get through the game without letting anyone die, which just, just isn't realistic. <laughs> and so we just had a handful of deaths kind of near the end of the game. It felt very different the second time that I played it. But one thing that I really love about City of Horror is I feel like it is a more effective way to imagine how you would react in that situation. So one of the things about 
Dead of Winter that I don't love as much is you're often given these moral quandaries that come up with the story with the crossroads cards where you have to make a decision between, for example, helping some people who might be just, you know, taking food out of your supply and not really providing anything for the colony or just letting them starve and freeze in the cold. And in general, I feel like the group decides we're just going to let them fend for themselves because we have to look out for ourselves first and foremost. And it's an easier decision to make. I don't know if I would really make those decisions if I were in that situation. Mm -hmm. Versus City of Horror, I think it does kind of get a little more viscerally down to if you were in the situation, who would you... What, what would be the extent of how harsh you would be to other people? What would be... How willing would you be to lie and cheat and steal and backstab and betray just to keep yourself alive? Well, I think part of that is just that there are different situations. City of Horror is an isolated outbreak, and the game takes place pretty shortly afterwards. There's really nothing established about, you know, humanity is in complete disarray at this mm -hmm. point. And right, the game takes place over the course of four hours, at the end of which whoever's alive gets to go to the chopper. So your entire motivation is just to survive long enough to get to this chopper. And in that amount of time, you can make very rash, very careless, and very cruel decisions. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I think the tone is absolutely spot on. Dead of Winter, on the other hand, assumes you have been surviving with the same group of people now for a little while. There is, at this point, some cohesion and at least some sense of hope that you might actually make it through this. And so that gives a different vibe. As far as the moral quandary with killing people, I think we see that. With, you know, tribalism, I think, is something that makes a big comeback in post-apocalyptic situations. I mean, I think, I think you make a good point. I do feel like the, the different times make a difference in the feel of the game. But as as high as the stakes can seem in Dead of Winter, I feel like City of Horror takes it to a new place. It takes it to a different place, really. That's fair, that's fair. I think that City of Horror is never going to be a favorite game in my collection, per mm -hmm. se, but I really appreciate the chances that it brings because there's constant opportunities to be surprised mm -hmm. and not every game can offer that and i feel like it's very appropriate in a horror genre just like jump scares to be able to constantly be surprised by the decisions that others make by always having limited information one of the challenges of city of horror is that you do still only have a few characters and so you can't get all the resources you can't know all the information and you have to rely on other people who you never really trust. Mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like City of Horror is a game that I pull up pretty consistently around Halloween time. That's all I got. <laughs> I, I was trying to think if I had something to add to that. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I do. Um, it's a different genre of horror movie, for sure. City of Horror is much more of like the in-your-face, gory, exciting for the entire uh, time sort of movie. Whereas I think City or Dead of Winter is more about suspense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really excited to get a look at The Last Friday. 
I don't think it's actually coming out until Halloween, if I recall, or if that's what they say online. Who knows? Which, which by the way, is a poor time to release. You, 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 I know. You can't do the day of release in a board game and expect it to, to see play. That's Definitely just, not. It's just not how board games work. I'm not I'm not 100% sure on when it's being released. Uh, those are just rumblings, rumors on the internet. And I was, didn't get a chance to play it at Gen Con, but I heard a lot about it this year, and it's a hidden movement game, which, again, I think is so appropriate for Halloween. Mm-hmm. Definitely a game we should talk about is Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space, which is a wonderful game that's great for the season. Of all of the hidden movement games we've played, that is my favorite Halloween-themed game. Yeah. Uh, reminds me a lot of the movie Alien, which is an underrated horror movie, and I think that's absolutely what it is, is a horror movie. One, I also feel like any game that gives you the opportunity to eat your friends is just... <laughs> It should be in your collection. Well, and I think one thing that we see in a lot of horror games is there's danger around every quarter. You know, just like the exposure dice in Dead of Winter makes you really think very carefully about even moving. Yeah. Um, in Escape from... So in Escape from Aliens from Outer Space, everybody has a dry erase board with a map on it, and you get clues as to where everybody is on the board, but you do not know for sure. The lights are out, everything is dark. You're both literally and figuratively in the dark for much of the game. And some players are playing as aliens, and some players are playing as people. But and who's who? But who's who? You don't know. And so all you have to go off is if you think somebody is chasing you, maybe they're an alien and maybe you should get away from them, but you don't ever really know. But again, this whole, the 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 sort of uh, atmosphere of paranoia that creates it, it makes, it ensures that you will not feel safe anywhere in this game. No matter where you go, you're going to be second-guessing yourself, and that's so important. And it makes the payoff so great when somebody finally gets eaten. Well, it isn't one of the things that you always say when you're watching a horror movie. Like, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have gone outside <laughs> and allowed myself to be, you know, hit with a bow and arrow or whatever. Um, right. I feel like Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space kind of calls you on that. Absolutely. Uh, and at times you can be really clever. You'd be like, oh, well, they think that I'm walking around, but I'm actually sending a cat to be a decoy. <laughs> But I also just love the images that it brings off. The last time that I played, I was an alien, but I was really confused, and I didn't know who was who. And I ended up just, like, flinging myself and taking a bite out of somebody in the dark who ended up being another alien. And that's another brilliant... Because, like, in a lot of hidden movement games, my one of my complaints is there's often one player, either the uh, the hidden character or the hunter characters, who really doesn't have anything to worry about. I mean, they might worry about losing the game, but I think one player ends up having more fun in a lot of hidden movement games than oh, the others. I don't think that's the case for aliens. I think the game is dangerous for everyone. As an alien, you might inadvertently be eaten by another alien. That happens, and there's often one hunter on the board who's got a gun. Like, <laughs> you know, if you go after the wrong human, you might get shot. So nobody can really take their own safety for granted, and that's so important for a horror game. That's the fun part about a hidden movement game, is that you get to hunt and be hunted. Having that both of those roles is what's exciting. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's one of the things that, in theory, The Last Friday is hoping to do, because you start out at a summer camp, and there's a madman who's chasing all the campers, but then the second round, uh, the campers are chasing the madman mm -hmm. and trying to hunt him down. 
it sounds like it's going to kind of negate my need for having letters from Whitechapel, which also has rounds and hidden movement, um, but it's just about Jack the Ripper and the cops, so Jack is constantly the one running, and running is the more exciting part, I think. That was my experience of the game. I don't think that the stakes really ever got very high for the police in that game until the very end when it... If we didn't catch him, we were going to lose. But there are a couple of rounds that just seemed inconsequential. Yeah. And, like, when we're actually saying, well, we could probably let him get away with killing one more hooker right now without actually having any sort of emotional reaction to the fact that a human being has died, the game, I think, has failed on a thematic, uh, on a thematic level at that point. It is fun to play <laughs> as Jack, but Jack's the only one who has all the information. So, like, I was... Jack the last time that we played, because it was my birthday, and um, you guys were right next to me and didn't know it, and so I just imagined myself, like, pressed up against the wall, like, uh, <laughs> oh, what's that movie? Like, The, uh, the Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> just, like, <"Hey!" laughs> just, just, like, you don't see me. You don't Crunk. see me. Crunk exactly. sneaky Exactly. Oh, that was such a great scene. That's I didn't exactly, make the connection. That's exactly what I was doing. Um, so I was enjoying that a lot. And I, I also should mention that Scotland Yard is basically the slightly more accessible version of Letters from Whitechapel, where, again, you've got cops chasing after a criminal. Um, and I, I love hidden movement games. They're really part of what brought me back into the new generation of board games. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like that's... It's it's never as much fun when only one person is has all the information. It makes me feel like Escape from Aliens is probably the one that I would want to own. It's not my favorite genre. It's a good genre, though. But I think I would only really want one representation of it in my collection. And so far, that's my favorite one I've played. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent game. I feel like, especially with all the different maps and the different characters that you can play, there is a lot of replayability there as well. Yeah, but the the idea that the game is high stakes, you only need to get eaten once to die, is really strong in that one. And the idea that everything is scary. You do not know what's around you in that game, and that's so important. I, I think those are key features of a horror game. Yeah. Let's get into Mentions of Madness, because we've played that a couple times recently. I feel like it gets a lot of attention. It's getting a lot of attention right now. It and is. I have mixed feelings about it, at least in terms of the way that it's been marketed. I do too. I do too. I think that your reservations here are well-founded. Um, but yeah, we talked a little bit about how horror games need to make the stakes high. They need to make sure that bad things that happen to you are really dramatic and really consequential. And one way that games have done that is by giving you a cast of characters so that you can have a series of small tragedies happen throughout the game without removing you from the game entirely. It's very sad that one of my characters has died, but I do have two more, so I'm still playing the game. Mansions of Madness does this differently with uh, a hit point system that I think a lot of games should consider adopting anyway. You know, if I play most games that I play where I have a character with hit points, the difference between full hit points and one hit point is non-existent. Theoretically, I am more bruised up, but it does not affect my game plan at all. And that's not really the way getting injured should feel. It shouldn't feel like, well, I can get stabbed nine times, but that last one... <laughs> that's that's the, me over the edge. That's the one that'll do me in. But what... Mansions of Madness does to make injuries constant because you can't get through a game of Mansions of Madness without getting injured a little. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. This is a dangerous uh, mansion that you're exploring. 
Um, I suppose I should have said this is a this is a game set in a Lovecraftian fiction, where players explore a haunted mansion trying to uncover some usually some kind of cult plot to make this awful monster appear or something like that. Just and, like real life. Yeah, just like real. You know, as you do when you enter a, when you enter a mansion in the 1920s. So, uh, but you're not going to make it through this adventure without getting injured a little bit. The thing is, though, anytime you get injured, you're drawing a card, and that card is potentially giving you a debilitating injury that will limit you for the rest of the game. You might break a leg, or you might start bleeding out. And so it changes the calculation, where you're not just trying to say, well, I can get hit ten times... Uh, and so the risk is every hit brings me closer to death. The risk in this case is I might become disfigured. And I think that's really smart. It makes what is often a mundane and boring mechanic exciting. It makes it a real calculation. I love games that take mechanics that are so basic and simple and and adds complexity to them. I mean, that's what I love about Dead of Winter. The fact that it takes movement, the most basic mm -hmm. mechanic that you have in a game, and gives it extra stakes. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's super important. Well, and also, the the card system allows them to take the... In this game, one of the features is that the horrible things you see actually unsettle you, and will eventually traumatize you, and uh, make you go insane. This has been a feature of most Lovecraftian games, but oftentimes your sanity points end up just being another kind of hit points. They don't actually have any real in-game significance. But in Mansions of Madness, the insanity conditions do different things to you. Like, best case scenario, they might just impose some limitation where after seeing this horrific thing I don't want to be in enclosed spaces anymore and if I do then I'm gonna become more unsettled but once you get uh, once you get pushed over a certain limit then you take on this new game condition uh, for example I played a game where I uh, became terrified after being chased by a mob of people who were trying to kill me and I became so traumatized that I could not speak anymore. Literally. That's hilarious. I, I, the, the, my new game condition was if I spoke, I lost. So I had to play the game totally silently. It really did create <laughs> some interesting situations where you're just, like, pointing emphatically. <laughs> uh, there's one, when you guys were trying to solve that puzzle, I knew how to solve it. Well, and I couldn't tell you. To be fair, I was not the one solving the puzzle. <laughs> I'm now, bad at solving puzzles. Now, unfortunately, my wife wasn't much better. <laughs> we figured it out, but she just, like, went right into it and started moving things around, and I could see, like, you screaming in your head, like, No! Why did you do that? <laughs> and those are, the, those are the moments that are fun. Those are the moments it, that you can talk about after the game is over. It ended up being a much bigger limitation than I thought it was going to be, because yeah. I was able to do a lot of communication through gesturing. But in that moment, it was just like, oh my god, I can see you guys failing, and I am helpless to do anything about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was great. I will say that the flavor text in Mansions of Madness really does lend itself very well to being a horror game. I 
can't say that I often feel unsettled by the things that I read on cards or on a screen, but when we were playing, what was the name of that scenario? Escape from Innsmouth. So when we were playing that scenario and there was a mob of people who were coming after us, uh, apparently they had effigies uh, <laughs> that looked like members of our family. <laughs> and that was a little unsettling. They I don't read many cards or flavor text that make me go, oh, wow, that's intense. They really go all out with the writing in that one. And also yeah. it's a it, one of the features of this game is it's a cooperative game in which you play through scenarios, which are pre-written. The downside is, of course, the lack of replayability. Yeah. The upside is narrative cohesiveness that is hard to find in a lot of other games. Yeah. And I think that's a debate with this game that we may get into is whether or not that trade-off is worth it. I will say, we had a good long play session of Escape from Innsmouth and failed. And my wife and I this Sunday are going to try that one again with a totally different strategy. So... There's replayability here, especially when the scenario is hard, but... Yeah, I do feel like it's the kind of game, if it were a little cheaper, it would be a little easier to swallow the fact that it, the replayability is somewhat limited, because I can't see myself wanting to play that same scenario multiple times after I've beaten it. Sure. One thing that's interesting about replaying a scenario is that there will often be large sections of the forking story that you haven't seen. Mm -hmm. So I think each scenario has at least two plays through in it, probably no more than that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the sort of game that you could hold on to and come back to much later down the line. So the, a game that I also think about is Sherlock Holmes, Consulting mm -hmm. Detective, which, again, is a game with limited replayability because you're trying to solve a crime and once you've made that attempt and figured out how it worked that's kind of the end of it but when I get through my copy of Sherlock Holmes I don't necessarily see myself trying to sell it right away I mean that's the kind of game that you can hold on to and pass along to your kids it's a memory at any rate it's it is a memory of some good times that you've had and that's worthwhile yeah. It's worth mentioning, with Mansions of Madness, they have announced DLC scenarios that they'll be releasing. What is DLC? Downloadable oh, content. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, not video, we're not video gamers, by the way, so... <laughs> Miso... Miso. Miso? <laughs> Me even less than you. <laughs> Miso, where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah, me even less than you, but... Um, and that's, I think, it's, I think, what they needed to do to make this game a good value. The idea that new content will come along periodically. Um, as long as you have to pay for all of it. You have to pay $3 per scenario. <sighs> but see... It should have been free. Uh, it, this is, this is going to come down to a difference between us, though. I love miniatures on modular map tiles. I just absolutely love it. It's such a weakness of mine, and I love Lovecraftian themes. So, like, this game just kind of hit me in all of my... Special places. All of my special places. <laughs> it, it, it tickled me the correct way. I'm tickled. I, I mean, if you want to talk about overplayed themes, Lovecraft is definitely up there with zombies. No doubt, but I think some... It, not all Lovecraft games are equal. I think oftentimes Lovecraft is done in this really kind of cartoonish, canned way with really no love or care for the original thematic material. And I yeah. will say, as much as Fantasy Flight is very guilt, guilty of cranking out Lovecraft game after Lovecraft game, they care very much about this material. They do, I think, treat it with the respect that it deserves. You can certainly tell when the creators of the game put 
love and effort into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like a cake. right (laughs) but you it's true like you can you can tell when there's when there's work and passion behind a game and i i can't tell that there's a fair amount of passion behind mansions of madness but i also feel this urgency to get it out there so for example the fact that the miniatures that come in the base set don't have the same quality as the miniatures that come in the expansion Mm -hmm. i feel like that's a place where their respect and love for the game wasn't as high as it should have been. Sure. No, that's absolutely fair. That's absolutely fair. Um, you know, if we're going to talk about you know, tickling our fantasies in special places, <laughs> I, I do want to mention, because I, I know that we talked in the beginning about uh, you know fear and arousal, and I feel like we can't get away from the, the sexiness <laughs> in some way of, of playing board games, like the tactile sensation it seems maybe like a strange topic to bring up when we're talking about horror genre. <laughs> but I do feel like there's this there's this visceral quality that board games have. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that we try to understand we're trying to understand how what's essentially, you know, dice and cardboard can elicit such strong feelings mm-hmm. and and create these intense memories. And I do feel like the the tactileness of it is an important thing to mention. I mean, the the thrill that you get when you're like popping out the components from the cardboard, mm-hmm. the the joy that you have in like, oh my god, I love, I freaking love little wooden meeples mm-hmm. in various animal shapes. Like, I just want to make a menagerie of all the little animal meeples, and and I feel like that's that's a piece of it too. The fact that when you're playing a video game or watching a movie. Yes, you're you're immersed in this very visual world, but you're not manipulating things in the same way. You're mm-hmm. not, you know, and I don't think you can draw a parallel between pressing buttons on a keyboard and being able to pick up a Cthulhu and put it right next to your character. I just feel like the the way that you can touch and interact with the world is really important in board games. Well, and there's this interesting thing about, you know, each component that you have is a sign to your brain to imagine a certain thing, almost like the way words don't resemble what they describe, but they evoke those things for us. I think something similar might be happening with board games. It's a box of ideas that are that are represented in a way that we get to move them around. And that's what communicates narrative to our brains. But so much of the illusion must be generated in our heads. I don't think board games do much of that work for us. I think we must be really, if we play a game and we actually feel a sense of excitement or dread or trepidation, we are very much motivated, I think, to buy into that illusion, to create that illusion according to the board game suggestion. Yeah, I think even... So when I when I think of the game Escape, which... Um, what is it? Escape, Curse of the Hidden Temple? Is that... The the dice-rolling game. No, the the real-time game. Yeah, that's what I'm... It, it's... Yeah, it... It's oh, yeah, I like, guess it is dice-rolling. It is dice-rolling. This, this is a, a real-time game in which um, players are cooperatively trying to get out of this temple in real-time... Uh, so no turns. It's got a dexterity component to determine whether or not you can take actions. And you have about ten minutes to do this. There's actually a CD that comes with the game that <laughs> makes sounds in the background and tells you <laughs> as the you know cave is going to 
collapse and you need to get out. But I think even without that CD providing a more immersive experience, I mean, the fact that you're running, like you are, you are running, you're, it's in real time, mm -hmm. you're rolling dice, you're just trying to get your damn meeple closer and closer to the exit. <laughs> I mean, there's panic there. Yes. <laughs> there, like the fact that we could take joy and entertainment out of experiences of panic. What else can we say about that? Like, what other experiences do we have where we can so enjoy these ex emotions that are often very uncomfortable? Mm -hmm. I think that's really extraordinary. Yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, I think, yeah, you, you become an accomplice in self, in your own self-deception, in your own deception, when you decide you're going to believe. It, it has been suggested to you that you have 10 minutes to do this thing or you are going to die. I want to and believe. And you choose to believe it. You know, never enough that you could actually feel like you were in danger, but enough that you can start to stimulate some of that fight or flight response. Well, this has been a really fun discussion, but I think we need to stop it here so that people can go trick-or-treating. But for now, we just wanted to let you guys know about our social media presence. We are on many platforms now we are online we are we have a twitter at gaming real life we tweet we don't know how to tweet we, we i've actually never tweeted before we're trying to learn about tweeting I saw, have you tweeted yet i have i think i did it right <laughs> i googled how to tweet okay you you'll have to teach me how to tweet later okay i would like to tweet at our our, our listeners as well okay we also have an Instagram, Gaming in Real Life Podcast. There are several photos of my cat, and he's next to board games, so it's relevant. He's the best. He's our mascot. We also have a Facebook, Gaming in Real Life Podcast, and you can email us, gaminginreallifepodcast at gmail.com. Please email us. We are so lonely. <laughs> Say hello. Give us some feedback. Share a story with us. Uh, give us your thoughts. Uh, literally anything. Tell well, us what we want to, you want us to cover next time. That's it. Yeah. And you can also check out our beautiful website, www.gaminginreallifepodcast.com. It has pictures of us. <laughs> and, and, and it was designed by Gina. And it has our episodes. And what else does it have? Ways for you to email us again. <laughs> and probably more stuff later. Sure, right? Probably. Probably. What else do you need on a website? <laughs> I've never made a website before. It's it's exciting. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. It's a brave new world. In that website. So check it out. Until next time, we wish you good friends. Good games. And, and goodbye. goodbye.